everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We are discussing stages 18 and 19, as well as some non sequiturs and big picture storylines as we wrap up this 2022 Tour de France this weekend. Andrew, do you want to say a quick word about your Choose the Hard Way podcast before we get into the cycling bits? Yeah, I'd love to, Spencer. And first, I'd like to let everyone listening know that there is a bear living in Spencer's area and it continues to visit his home. We believe that it actually wants to join us on the podcast. So that's maybe <laughs> maybe something to look forward to on a post-tour episode. But as it relates to the hard way, so the hard choose the hard way is my podcast where my guests share stories about how hard things build stronger, more resilient people. I've had the opportunity to have some really amazing guests, including Spencer, and I'm about to drop an episode. As many of you know, the Women's Tour de France starts on Sunday, and I'm going to be dropping a new episode with Jill Yesko and Ali Davis. They're filmmakers. They're working on a documentary about the original Women's Tour de France that ran from 1984 to 1989. It's called Uphill Climb, and you can find them on social at uphillclimb.film. It's an amazing story, so please come check it out. Choose the Hard Way is at choosethehardway.com. You can also find it everywhere you listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the good stuff. And you can also find me at Fonts and at Hardway Pod on social. Awesome. I can't wait to listen to the episode. And I need to watch the doc- documentary because I was trying to tell my wife about the Tour de France, women's Tour de France this morning, and I realized I don't really know anything about it. So very excited to catch that. Andrew, let's just get right into it. What did you take? What did you think about today's stage? Christophe Laporte, um, the French finally get a winner. A, that's huge, huge for for France. Really impressive stage win. I, I was often confused about what was going on in the final few kilometers. Uh, Wout was leading out. I was, I had money on Wout for the sprint. I was concerned. I was angry. What is happening? What is Wout doing? And I saw Laporte lurk, lurking back there and thought, wow, is he going to go for the sprint? That's funny that they're going to waste all this and he's going to go for fourth place. But no, we just kind of surged away. We can talk about the mistake, I think, that was made that allowed this super strong uh, second breakaway to get away that he was able to leapfrog off of uh, foils Jasper Philipson, who had an amazing sprint behind, who would have won this stage easily had this not happened. What would you take away from the stage other than it was really fast and pretty boring? <laughs> it was really fast. <laughs> And pretty boring. A lot of complexity at the end there with road furniture. Something that really jumped out at me post-finish was seeing Vinyagard cooling down in his aero bars. Of course, thinking ahead about the time trial, he had his time trial bike on the trainer. I mean, with Laporte, got to say, Spencer, I didn't see that coming. Did you? I did not see that coming. I have a like a I have a betting podcast where I try to predict each stage, and we didn't even mention Laporte. I didn't even look at his odds. I bet they were amazing. It kind of makes sense in retrospect, except for the fact that Laporte, in theory, would never be going for a stage win. I kind of wonder, A, this is A, 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 double A. When the results first came out, Teddy Pogacar sprinted for this stage, and he had a time gap, a six-second time gap over Jonas. They've since revised that, and they've gotten rid of the time gap. So, discuss. Conspiracy theories abound, please. Please tweet them at us. But... I, I wonder if this is a little bit of, first of all, Laporte's worked very hard for three weeks. He deserves to be given a chance to win. He's very talented. It's also, if you want to like 
I don't think teams actually think this way, but it's fun to imagine them trying to massage their image in France because if Wout wins again today, it's just like, oh my God, this Dutch team is coming in and just smashing up the race. Pas normal, you know, cries of they're doping, but they get Laporte the win. Suddenly there's not the criticism from the French media. Everyone's happy. It's good times all around. And that was my first thought. Yeah, and who's left on Yumbo? I mean, I guess there are quite a few people left, but the number of riders on Yumbo that have won stages in this tour is pretty mind-blowing. Again, thinking back to Tour 1.0 and, you know, Team Sky, Postal, Discovery, Epoch, you just never would have seen anybody given leash or even today, this was just appeared to be opportunistic. The team was talking about it following the stage and they're just like, yeah, I mean, Laporte's role at the end of the stage was to protect Jonas and then instinct kicked in the door opened and he went for it. But it's just hard to imagine this happening in a bygone era. It's very, yeah, as you, yeah, this would never happen. My co-host on my other podcast, Johan Bernil managed a team and he cannot like fathom this happening because they would, that's just not the way they raced. They, it was just super conservative, everything for the yellow Jersey. And you know, I, it's like fun. Like we're winning from this, you know, because Laporte's so talented in a bygone era, as you say, he just would have been stashed on, you know, even with Sky in the mid 2000s, they had all these talented riders that we never got to see do anything because they're just stashed back with Chris Froome. So it's awesome that this is happening. I'm not quite sure why it's happening. I, I don't, it maybe, yeah, it, <laughs> I, <laughs> so it's, it's a good, good vibe. Good yeah, vibes it's a good theory. question. I yeah, I, I guess good vibes. The team looked really excited at the end. I, it's, it is perplexing. I'm going to have to take some time following this tour. I guess I'm already in a, a pretty remote rural area. I might need to go somewhere without running water or electricity <laughs> and just like a notebook and, you know, just reflect on this and think, listen to the wind and think about what happened in this tour and whether we'll ever go back to the way things were before. I mean, as, as we entered this stage today, I know a lot of this was on your mind as well. Spencer, we were texting about this last night, but I was like, is Mohoric going to go for it today? Has he just been laying low? There's also, you know, we have the Miguel Angel Lopez doping accusations or not accusations, just there appears to have been some movement and uh, some criminal action potentially heard involved in. from Eurosport today. I mean, God, maybe we should get into this late in the podcast, but Eurosport is now saying that's not true. So yeah, right. To add like an extra wrinkle to it. And the team has no idea what's going on. His Lopez's own team. Well, I mean, what else are they going to say though? But I, I don't even I, know if he's under investigation or not. I don't, I don't know if Lopez knows. This is very yeah. confusing. Yeah. And we want to talk about the tour. Some people don't like to talk about doping and bike racing. It's just a part of the sport. And I think it's something we definitely are going to talk about. It's on my mind going back to how this tour started with the raid that happened before the tour on the Bahrain riders' homes. And then there was also the raid immediately in the days before the race in their hotel and what's happened since then, like Spencer, I don't know if you can share anything about what you've heard about these activities, but here we are three weeks later and nothing's happened. These riders are all still in the race. We just, we don't have to imagine that's just an incredibly disruptive thing to happen from uh, just like a focus confidence point of view, putting these riders under scrutiny. Here we are at the end of the race. They've produced, no results. And then Mohoric, of course, going for it today, which 
I just kept waiting, thinking, okay, when when is he going to do this? Today was the day. And uh, I also, going into the stage, I kept thinking about, where's Peter Sagan? Is he still in this race? Yeah, Peter Sagan is not doing well. Um, but first of all, in Bahrain, we were, I mean, I think we were even saying this, and the general consensus is, well, they get raided and then they suck. But I was actually going through, Fred Wright on Bahrain, on the ride of his life, this tour, the guy is a stud. He's been close winning out of two breakaways, actually out of three breakaways. He was last man standing back on stage seven, I believe. And then Luis Leon Sanchez is better than I've seen him in years. And probably a key component to mention is Jack Hegg was they came into this race for GC with Jack Hegg and he crashed out on stage five, which is extremely disruptive. The only the only big disappointment I would say is Matej Motoric. But I was also thinking, A, he was very good at Tour Slovenia, but potentially too good two weeks before the tour. I was even wondering at the time, like, so what's the plan here? You peak two weeks before the Tour de France? That seems like that's going to be hard to, to keep that rolling. But this hasn't really been, if you think about opportunities for him, it's not been a great race. Like Wout Van Aert has kind of come in and redefined the Motorich role where he was the Superman from the breakaways last year. but. Then Wout's like, well, I'll just do this on even harder stages where you can't even keep up on the climbs. And if you think about the flat stages, they haven't been great breakaway days either. So Motorich perhaps is the only one that's underperformed if we really look at that team. And Toons, I think Toons has been pretty good. He was close to a stage win in the first week. Again, not a, not, it's just not maybe today would have been a – I mean, today wasn't hard enough for Toons. It just hasn't been – the, the shift in racing has really hurt those opportunists. I'd say Motorich is the only one on the team that has been like an abject disappointment. That sounds mean to say, but I thought he was kind of, a, he had a great tour last year in a great spring, probably would have expected more from him for this tour. He probably should have been in Fred Wright's role today in that second breakaway because he probably, a good Motorich could have won that stage. Um, and then you, sorry, I forgot the other thing you asked me about, the other doping piece. Oh, we'll oh. go back to that. We'll go back to that. I just, I just think it's interesting that we saw Bahrain active today. I mean, we knew they would be because they're out of runway, not the runway that the cyclists raced on the other day, but they're out of runway in terms of doing anything and getting any results in this race. But Bahrain was on my brain because of the Miguel Angel Lopez thing. And as we've seen in the past, whether it's Operation Puerto or other matters related to doping, it can take years for these things to be investigated and then to move or not move into criminal proceedings. And at the end of these investigations, sometimes there are writers implicated at other times. And I'm not saying that this is what's happening, but we've seen it happen in the past where someone can more or less swat the other team, right? So someone can like place a call to authorities, dime somebody out, make an accusation. It leads to police activity or a raid. And sometimes that actually is because something's going on and other times nothing's going on and somebody's just diming them out to like poke them. But the last we heard, that's what happened with Bahrain. Maybe not exactly another team, but I guess like a, the, the story we have so far is it was a blogger trying to catfish these two anti-doping advocates in France and feeding them false information about the team that they took to prosecutors. 
I don't know what the heck's going on with these prosecutors. Like, why would you not ask for a little bit more evidence? But this this gentleman has shared emails, like screenshots of emails where he's in contact with these anti-doping advocates. They're taking that information to the prosecutor. So potentially this has just been all, it kind of looks like it's it's just like a abuse of power, basically. Like they don't really have anything. It's just nothing. They did seize a bunch of pills. You'd imagine if those were illegal that we would know by now. I mean, they all got hair follicle tests too, which are very hard to fool. So, I mean, what, what's probably happening, like the reality of doping right now is this is not, this is just me speculating. I don't have any inside information on this, but I just know in other sports, you just go away for a while. Like you go to Columbia, you know, if like people are in Columbia, you're like, oh, that's weird. Why would you spend your winners there? Because anti-doping, they're not going to come test you there. So um, with the Operation Alderos that just wrapped up with the German doping doctor, there was a lot came out during that. And it was like, well, you, you go away for Christmas. You, you get blood taken out at Christmas because no one's going to test you around that time of year. And then you just put it back in right before your competition. And there's nothing to test positive for because it's your own blood. So that, that's probably what's going on here if, if there is any funny business. I guess that's where the raids help because if you have a bunch of blood bags, a raid is going to find it. So that would be the positive spin for the raids that it's essentially spot checks that are keeping anyone from being too blatant with doping. My problem with the raids is it's always like the same three teams. Like when does Yumbo, like is Yumbo ever going to get raided? Probably not because they're too politically powerful. Same thing with Ineos, um, any French team. I guess, no, that's not true. Like Archaea gets beaten up on quite a bit and Kofidis is always getting raided. So it seems, just seems like they go after the same like weaker teams just because they can. Yeah, somebody will get got at some point and who knows what the reality of this is, but narratives drive behavior. They drive outcomes, good and bad. And whether these accusations are true or not, they have implications. I'm also, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but I'm just thinking about the fact that we live in a time when a potentially make-believe person named Satoshi invented Bitcoin. And, you know, the origin story of that is is an interesting, um, it's not a myth, but like we don't know who made Bitcoin. And then people are trying to say that they're him, but then not being believed and having to go to court to prove that they're them and not able to do it. It's super interesting. What does this but, have to do with doping? I'm not entirely sure, but I'm just saying that when people make accusations and are diming other people out, we don't really know what the reality of the situation is. And, you know, here we are. It's, I mean, I don't like the raids because it's just like everyone reads, every normal person reads doping raids at the Tour de France and they just assume that something bad has happened. And then at least in the last decade, I don't think any raid has been successful, but that's good. I mean, if you remember the cross country world championships for skiing, they did a raid three years ago and it was like <laughs> people's knee had needles in their arms in their hotel room. So I mean, that's good that they're not finding that at the tour. Like if people are doing funny business, it's, it's happening at a much more, uh, I guess, remote location. I don't know if I was really wanting to win races and I was down to cheat, I'd probably just go away to the Canary Islands and do everything there and not actively dope at races, which potentially is what's happening. Spencer, an angle that no one has really brought up so far in this analysis of the tour is that, yes, Pagachar looks like he may not win the tour. We do still have this time trial. 
I would like to point out that this is the first tour when he has ridden a bike with disc brakes. Yeah, I don't think you're out of line at all blaming this loss on disc brakes. There's a direct, direct correlation here. Um, yeah, did the guy ever lose on rim brakes? No, he didn't. He lost on disc brakes. Um, let's speaking of disc brakes, heavy, heavy, heavy disc brake bikes. Let's talk about yesterday's stage, stage 18, where Wout Vinar. There's actually I've I have not kept up on the comments on my newsletter this year, but there was some maybe some grumbling last night from commenters about like this is not realistic. How is a 79 kil- kilogram man dropping the def- two-time defending champion on one of the hardest climbs of the tour? Which was in a, that was awesome. I don't care if he is doping. That was sweet to watch i'll watch that any day every day um i mean it also is worth mentioning that pogacar had crashed right before that and that wow gets to choose when he rides hard and tade has to ride hard every day and had been attacking mercilessly for like five straight days probably went into being pretty tired on that climb but i was so i was blown away by yumbo's teamwork yesterday i thought that was like a textbook addition of what you should do if uh, a if you have Wout Van Aert who can just get up the road and shred some of the world's best breakaway climbers on climbs and then stay away until the last five kilometers of Otakam but I mean they they looked a little dicey there when Pogacar attacked Vinegard was isolated Kuz got back on and then I want your thoughts on the weight I mean the weight worked really well the fact that Pogacar crashed and then Jonas waited for him worked perfectly for him because they could get Benut and Kuz back up to, te- or to Jonas. Kuz took him all the way up to Wout. Wout took him all the way to 3K to go. And then he didn't even have to attack, and he dropped Tade. I mean, we've seen one Jonas attack at this entire race, and he's going to win the race by probably over three minutes. So, I mean, what was your takeaway from that stage? I kept thinking about the UA team, its relative weakness in comparison to Yumbo and also thinking about the impact that COVID has had on this race, as well as the slippage of Micah's chain. Even if we'd had Micah there, I don't think it, I don't think it makes a difference because the reality is Tade just, he doesn't have whatever he would need to put the time into Jonas. Right. So I, I don't think that we would have gotten a different outcome in the race, but from a tactical point of view, Yumbo has put on a masterclass in this tour. And even though Roglic left the race, I mean, he did what he needed to do to get put Jonas in the position to make the attack that has made the difference that it potentially will win the tour. Let's see what happens in the time trial. But right. So I think that, uh, you know, I, th- Yumbo, I think he needs five seconds per kilometer. It would be un- unlikely that he overtakes that. That would, there would be some catastrophe. It's unlikely. Yeah, it's unlikely. Yet the race is not over. But I would agree with you. It's highly likely that that Jonas is going to walk away with the win in this Tour de France. And then, you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about what's going to go down on the Champs-Élysées because, wow, there are a lot of people who are hungry for a stage win. I know. I mean, you were just talking about about Bahrain and Matty Modric. I bet we see them again on once we hit the cobble. Apparently, they're not cobblestones. I think they're called like slats. But the cobblestone-esque surface of the Champs-Élysées will be alight with attacks this year, that's for sure. Yeah, Spencer, so looking at where we are in the tour at this point and Tade's performance, and I'm also thinking about MVDP's departure earlier in the race and Tade's race schedule heading into the tour, do you think that 
he's suffering from a bit of the MVDP eyes bigger than what he's able to deliver type of syndrome. Did he peak too early in the year and go too hard? Should he have followed a more conservative approach from a training point of view and racing schedule coming into the tour? Probably. I don't really have an issue. I'm just pulling up his racing schedule now. I don't have really have an issue with his spring. Like I thought that was so fun. The Tour of Flanders, Milano San Remo, like that was all a good time. I think where things went wrong, because this is so far apart. Flush Malone was his last race before Tour of Slovenia. That's in, it's on April 20th. No, March 20th. Wait, I don't know months. April 20th. And then he does Tour of Slovenia, which I think was, I think that's where we can pinpoint I mean, his form is not what it's been in the years past. I mean, last year, what, he put five minutes into Jonas in a single mountain stage. He's not stronger than Jonas. I mean, today, at one point, he had a time gap. But since that was taken away, what, he's only putting time into Jonas one time. And that was stage five on the cobblestones when Jonas had the mechanical. So just on pure fitness, he hasn't put any time into Jonas at any point. He's got time bonuses. I think that tour of Slovenia was a mistake. I mean, there are mountainous areas of Slovenia. The race doesn't really go over them. It's all like low altitude, explosive racing. Not what you would recommend. I mean, especially since Jonas was at altitude doing specific like long climb tour de France training and preparation. I think that was not a good idea. And I think that speaks to a larger chaos inside his uae team where he's clearly calling the shots like there's no tactical information coming from the team car we even saw a weird moment did you catch that with the team car yesterday after he crashed where he was they were telling him to keep attacking on the downhill and he's like i just crashed i'm not going to continue to do this i he said i just want to win the stage and he was yelling at them because they hadn't given him given him water in over an hour which goes back to the teamwork that you know if he has teammates he's probably getting water more often than than he was without any teammates around him. And that kind of, then he cracks, what, 30 minutes after complaining about that and kind of goes back to stage 11 where he didn't really seem to be getting food or water as he needed either. It just feels like it's a disaster at that team. Um, there's, there's no one, like, there's no one behind the curtain. It's just like Tade running the show. That tends to not work. I want your thoughts on, I mean, this race is probably over. As you, as you say, it's not over till it's over. but. Jonas almost lost it yesterday. When Tade was pushing on the descent, he clipped his pedal. It's very hard to stay up after you do that. I can't believe he stayed up. But if he goes down there, I think Tade wins the, the Tour de France. I don't think, I think Jonas would have been really, really hurting after going down that hard on the descent and probably wouldn't have been able to hold his wheel on the climb. What do you think? Completely agree. That wasn't going to be a gentle slide out and some gravel on the side of the road. and. You know, I also think Tade's wreck looked relatively, it looked like a soft landing, but that, man, that had to hurt. And he was, he also landed on his hand. So he probably yeah. has road rash on his hand. Wear gloves, everybody, if yeah, you're what out is riding with, your bike. <laughs> what, why is that cool now? No one, none of these guys have gloves on. And then, yeah, that was the first thing I noticed with Tade. I was like, God, that must have hurt his hand. Yeah, I, I wonder if one of... I don't think this is why people do it, but your hands are one of the best places for thermal regulation. So if you can keep your hands cooler, you actually can keep your entire body cooler. But I don't think that's why he's doing it. I think some people just like, they like it from a feel point of view. They don't want to wear gloves. Maybe they think it looks cool. But if, you're, if you wreck, 
your hand is probably going to touch the ground. And that's one of the reasons to wear gloves. One of the, one of the primary reasons to wear gloves, because you don't want to rip skin off of your hands. I don't know if you've done that before, Spencer. It tends to not feel too good. But going back to Jonas's near wreck, the way that that happened, he struck a pedal. He was at a very high speed. He would have he would have potentially somersaulted the way that that would have unfolded as a wreck. And to make that kind of save was very it was very surprising to me that he was able to save that at that speed and then to remain composed. It, uh, but I think that just shows you how at the limit both Jonas and Tade were on that descent and that the race was far from settled at that moment in time. No, and that was like a really silly, I mean, that, that's a mistake you make when your, your heart rate is really, really high and you're not thinking clearly. Um, cause he is a good descender. I mean, we saw when, when Tade crashed, Jonas was, he was just carving those corners so well. I'd love to get your, you're the gear guy. Um, I, I'm assuming they're not subbing them out for other ones, but Pogaccio has Pirelli tires. I think clincher tires with tubes in them. N- not good. I mean, that's like, I don't even think I would run that. I would not want to run those. I run like heavy, beefy clinchers that I bet are better than the ones Tade's racing on. I think Jonas is on very nice, at least tubeless, probably tubular tires. I have to imagine that made a difference on that descent. Yeah, if Tade was running actual clincher tires, then he would have had higher tire pressure. The contact patch on his tire would have been smaller than someone running either tubeless or tubular tires, even if they were comparable with tires. And I don't know how that makes sense unless you're, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how it makes sense for him to be running clinchers. And the reason why I think they're running clinchers is just there was like a gallery, some eagle-eyed cycling news photographer was taking pictures of his bike at the start of one of the stages and caught that he had tubes in his clinchers because Pirelli is like I guess they're they're, it's like a famous Italian tire brand they do like motorsports tires and car tires mainly and they've just recently gotten back into bike tires but I don't think I think it's just like a they just want to be in the e-bike tire game they don't really care about road bike tires this is just like marketing expense for them so these are not good tires that he's racing on and i don't know why they wouldn't have tubeless that seems crazy to me but yeah because as you say he's got to be in a higher psi and a higher pressure if he's got a tube in there and i mean you saw mcnulty the day before too he looked really bad on some of those descents, shockingly bad and that would you know a lot of gear stuff i kind of scoff at and think is marketing that the tires are are legit especially when you can run a lower pressure if you have tubeless or tubular um it's it's night and day how much better that is yeah and the fish fillet assassin jonas vineyard was running either tubulars or tubeless tires so he definitely had an edge with traction um when tade went off road it was an interesting choice for him to apply a lot of torque in a section of loose gravel. Uh, but again, you know, I mean, I'm applying, I'm, you know, I'm sure he was doing what he thought was the right thing and wanted to reconnect to Jonas in that moment and was probably at his limit and also probably pretty freaked out when he found himself on the side of the road. But that was, that was a mistake I didn't expect to see him make. No, I think that was like peak Tata hubris 
where he's like, all right, going around this corner. Okay. I'm on the gravel. I'll just keep going. I mean, potentially it's like fear, which you're, you're just, you know, it's like, okay, I'm okay. I've made it. I've made it. And then no, you're pedaling on gravel and you're torquing the bike and you're turning. It's not going to go well. He probably just should have put his foot down and eaten the time gap. It is interesting that, I mean, so he, he was attacking you. He was trying to get Jonas to crash. That was the plan. And he, it almost worked. And he certainly would have ridden away from Jonas had he crashed on that descent. And then he was assuming Jonas was doing the same to him. I mean, that's why he didn't just stop. You know, if like if if you or I or someone listening is out on a ride and they're going through a corner on the descent like that, you're just going to like slowly break and kind of awkwardly walk your bike back onto the road. You know, just try not to turn your bike when you're feeling like you're out of control. So you just kind of like come to a stop move your bike back onto the road, go. He didn't want to do that because he thought Jonas would leave him. So he took a risk, crashed. Jonas waits for him and everyone like loves it. You know, it's like, oh man, look at this sportsmanship. But it was, there was, I don't think there was any world where Jonas was riding away there. He didn't even want to be off the front. He wanted to be with his teammates who were behind him. Like that's, I thought that was like kind of totally overlooked. And then I really want your opinion on this. His two teammates are pulling Garrett Thomas up to him, which I've never seen before. The guy is third in the race, third overall, and he's getting a free ride back to the race leader. Clearly, it was the right decision, but that was another cycling 2.0 tactic of like, what is going on here? Um, what, did, what were you thinking in that moment? Were you, were you thinking, oh, my, my guy G's got this. He's going to roast these guys on this final climb. Yeah, Thomas the Tank Engine coming back hard. My thought was this just shows the total lack of respect yeah, for Thomas exactly from, from the Yummy yeah, Gummo business. This is disrespectful. Team. Yeah, just totally disrespectful. They're like, there's no way this guy left his vest on in the first time trial. You know, he keeps kind of chugging his way back up to us, but he's not a threat. We don't care. Yeah. All it they was, cared about. No, go ahead. Uh, yeah. No, I've, uh, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. I've, in the, the disrespect for someone that's on the podium and it's you got the feeling like do they know his name like do they know who this guy is it's like i don't know this guy's he's like been around us for three weeks we don't know what he's doing yeah Tade really has a gift for that after school special made for tv kind of moment I don't, i'm sure you've noticed this as have many people throughout the tour but you know, before he got destroyed by Jonas earlier in the race and lost several minutes, he had that moment when he like looked over at the camera, did the fake. Oh like, man, I'm I'm eating my Wheaties, thumbs yeah. up. And then when he he got up from the wreck, he got back up to Jonas. Jonas did take his hand, and much has been made of like, oh, this is this incredible moment of sportsmanship. The term fair play, which is a British phrase that's been used frequently on Eurosport is now trending. I, I feel like everyone on um, group rides in America is going to add that to their lexicon along with bidons and gilets. And I know fair play is an English term, but it's just like, it's an English thing. It's not something frequently said in American sport, right? But it is trending. And yeah, it was, it was kind of touching to see them hold hands, but it, I don't think they, I think Jonas was just like, there's a hand here. I'm looking backwards. My body's in that direction. I think I'll touch that hand. It didn't seem like a real heartfelt moment to me. What did yeah, you the, make of that? Yeah, I think you're right. I think probably it was genuine from Tade because he's, you're vulnerable after you crash. You're just like, oh my God, like what, you know, you're just, you're in fight or flight. And it's just like, oh wow, this guy didn't attack me. Like that's, 
really nice because um, I'm hurting. I'm physically hurting and scared. Yeah, for, but Jonas, I'm sure he was thinking, man, you were trying to get me to crash and I almost crashed three minutes ago. And I'm just waiting because my team is behind me and there's no way I'm going to waste energy trying to hold you off. That would just be helping you if, if he was burning energy on a pursuit to the final climb. Yeah, it, I definitely, and I sense hesitation from Jonas too. Like he's like, well, what's his hand doing here? I guess I'll grab it. I don't think it was like a lot. And there was even kind of an awkward moment after the stage where it, I mean, it's like a meme now where it kind of looks like a, maybe like a drunk gentleman at 4 a.m. Vinegard in his awkward Yumbo vest on the phone with God knows who. And then Tade comes up and hugs him. And it's kind of like, I don't know who, who is this guy? Like, what's he doing here? <laughs> Um, so it's, yeah, I would love to know, like, what's the dynamic between those two? I mean, Jonas is a hard guy to read. You you were saying early in the race, like, who's Tadej Pogacar? Who is Jonas Vingegaard? I mean, I I know very little about this guy other than he was a fishmonger. Yeah. The fish filet assassin. Let's get it trending on Twitter. These two guys, I tell you, I feel like we're in this era of cycling. If we can keep carrying this forward and one of them doesn't ride into the back of the bus while working on their time trial position or get blown by a crosswind, that this is a this is, you know, a potential Bjornborg, John McEnroe level rivalry. I know neither one of them has the temper of McEnroe, of course, but I think you know what I'm saying. And when I think about Thomas in that context, he's more of like a Mots Vlander. You know, he might win a tournament that Neither Tade or Jonas shows up to in the twilight of his career, and he'll probably we'll see what happens. But yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a really. I was going to say Andy Murray, okay, or yeah. Andy Roddick. That's a guy, right? Who yeah. just came along at the wrong time. I guess uh, Andy Murray was maybe better because he's older. He's one one, but it is funny to imagine this tour. Like imagine Jonas and Tade. Something happens to them in the first week. They get sick. They crash. We think Garrett Thomas is amazing. Like he's three minutes in front of David Gadu, who's who's also having an amazing tour, and we're never going to mention him. Sorry, David. You would be like, wow, Garrett Thomas, incredible, thirty six years old, riding better than he did when he won here four years ago or, or however long ago that was. And then here's my next question: If wow, if if Jonas and Tade are not here, does Wout Van Aert beat Garrett Thomas in the GC? Yes, I've had I've had the same thought. Like, and are we going to see him do a Wiggins and a Thomas right and drop ten kilos and suddenly or not suddenly is he going to transition into being a Grand Tour winner? And I know we've litigated this in a past episode whether Wout has that appetite or not remains to be seen. But yeah, why is he not winning Grand Tours? That's all I keep thinking as we watch him. How much time does anybody have stats on like how much when did Wout eat in this tour just riding off the front? Oh, it's got to be a lot. <laughs> I mean, lot I am Spencer almost every stage. Yeah, I would like to see a comparison and I'd like to talk a little bit about analytic cycling, just the data analysis of cycling that we've seen on Twitter and where some of these numbers come from, because no matter what anyone does on any climb somebody's pulling something out from 20 years ago and saying, you know, we talk again, we've talked about this, like so-and-so did such and such a time at this many Watts per kilos. I don't know how people are getting accurate weights for riders. <laughs> I think tour, the tour de France, word like, there is accurate. I yeah. think a lot of that is made up. 
No, I know, but yeah, yeah, like one aspect of watts per kilo is knowing how much someone actually weighs, and you know, it's it makes it. This is sports entertainment. This this is uh, it's not just sport. And part of, part of people enjoying the sport is speculating on what's happening. We don't know what these human beings actually weigh every day, and you know, Spencer, we were going back and forth again about uh, the lower no fiber climbing diet, which I don't know if we want to get into that that Adam Hansen talked about on, um, oh gosh, I forget whose podcast, but life in the Peloton, Mitch. Dock, yeah. Great guy. Yeah. Life on life in the Peloton in 2019. But you know, there are ways for riders to drop weight safely, even within the tour, just so that they're carrying less water weight or waste matter in their body than they typically would be carrying. They're safe legal methods and we don't know what these people weigh every day um anyway. well let me tackle this one by one i think we got to rewind really quick wow yes garrett thomas used to be a classics writer he was like wow before wow existed um my scorching hot take is i liked him more than i do not like this new garrett thomas like i do not want wow van art to lose a bunch of weight lose his explosiveness completely changed a a i don't think he could ever be a gc rider because think Jonas has attacked one time in this entire race that's Jonas's superpower is patience Wout would be the worst gc rider of all time because he would just be attacking every day um but he would lose like what makes him him you know just being so big and powerful being able to do whatever he wants on the bike and it would his career would probably look a bit like garrett thomas's like not able to really drop people on climbs, but just being a really strong, consistent rider who can time trial. And if let's say Wout becomes a GC rider, wins one Tour de France, is that a success compared to what he can do in his current form where he just sh absolutely shapes the race, wins seemingly stages at will, and probably goes on to win a few more monuments? I think I prefer the, the non-Grand Tour winning version of him. This is this also gets into Tour de France 1.0 versus Tour de France 2.0. I think many cycling fans have the expectation, as people did of Garrett Thomas, actually, that once someone wins the Tour de France once, they're then going to have multiple victories. It's certainly my expectation, which could be yeah. wrong, is that, hey, Jonas is now going to go on this run. He and Tade will be battling for Grand Tour victories and particularly Tour victories in the future. Maybe Bernal comes back into the frame, remains to be seen if he's still got the edge after riding into the back of a bus and nearly dying. And But, you know, maybe we have like a two or three-way battle. This is going to go on for three to five years. But that's, you know, I mean, did anybody think these guys were going to roll onto the scene and just start destroying everyone and winning the Tour de France? No. You bring up a very good point. There's a very prominent cycling person on Twitter. I won't say their name. Every, I feel like every time this happens, like in 2019 with Bernal, he tweeted like, this guy's going to be winning the next 10 tours. Then 2020 with Tade, this guy's going to be winning the next 10 tours. I guarantee he's going to tweet it with Jonas. And it's like, no, no. Do you remember the last year's tweet, man? Like there's just new people every year. I actually think Bernal, uh, let's say the accident never happens. I don't think he's good enough to challenge either of Jonas or Tade. I think this is maybe is another scorching hot take. I think maybe Garrett Thomas beats like a really fit Bernal at this race. Um, Whoa, shots fired. I mean, Thomas was so out of shape in 2019 and he got second 
to Bernal and at times looked like he could beat him. And, you know, the 2021 Giro win was was fun. Like that was cool. But he was not putting out the watts per kilo numbers to to compete with even I feel like even, even with Jai Henley at this year's Giro, let alone Jonas and Tade at this tour. You bring up, let's circle back to your watts per kilo points. Yes, climbing is two things, watts and kilos. We see all these all these things after stages. Um, I think it was Jonas on Granone where it was like, this is a better altitude watts per kilo performance than Igor Mernal has ever done. And then you start to wonder, well, yeah, how do, how do you know how much Jonas weighs? You don't even, and you don't even know what his watts are. You're just guessing based on, based on the time. But what about wind? What about the surface of the roads? I mean, the surface in the Pyrenees is completely different and much slower than the surface in the Alps. None of this is taken into account. And yeah, these guys maybe are strategically pooping out five pounds before mountain stages to be lighter. I do have a question about that. I mean, I respect Adam Hansen's a very smart man. Um, I, I really take issue with this Android. I feel like he led me astray. I listened to him. He said, Andrew, Android was the, was like the phone of the future. I get an Android. I get laughed at. I'm getting laughed at for my green bubbles because of Adam Hansen. So I do have a bone to pick with him about that. But is he suggesting that I just wonder like the, and a lot of that, I looked up the low fiber diet. It just sounds like a lot of like, that's kind of what we should all be eating all the time. You know, when you really dig into it, because I'm remembering a race I did, I should have won it with one leg. And I, I just ate way too, I was eating pasta for like three meals a day. And like a lot of it, it was not a good idea. And I was so bloated and inflamed. I just didn't race very well. So these low fiber diets are good. Like you just, it's like, yeah, I mean, we should all just be eating like eggs and rice and simple, simple things to break down when we're working out. But is he suggesting that they actually try to then like basically give themselves natural laxatives to empty their bowels before mountain stages? No, 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 no. That's to be clear. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying more of what you just said, which is eating really easy to digest proteins and primarily white carbohydrates. So very few, if any complex carbohydrates, so you wouldn't eat a lot of salad or vegetables in the, you know, 24 to 36 hours before a big climbing stage. The, it's not an idea. Your body takes time to digest food. If anyone is of the age where, um, yeah, you've had to be screened for colon cancer, for example, and prepared to do that. You actually have much more food in your body for much longer than you think you do. And so there, I like, there are kind of some comp competing food philosophies and also these athletes, they have to fuel for a three week effort and they probably do digest more rapidly than the average person. But this low fiber before climbing stages theory is to eat really simple, easy to digest protein. So probably egg whites, um, white flaky fish, perhaps chicken, although chicken's probably a bit harder to digest than white flaky fish, but certainly no red meat or pork. And then, yeah, white rice, pasta, simple sauces. And the idea is that you're not carrying any extra fiber in your, you know, you're not carrying more weight in your intestines than, than you need to as you go into a stage like that. Riders can drop up to five pounds doing that relative to their normal weight. And, you know, and, and it's not something you could probably do for every stage because to your point, Spencer, you're, you also have to think about inflammation and 
micronutrients because we also have seen at the other end of this continuum, I think Sky and before Sky actually, Vauders and early Garmin, they were really into marginal gains through nutrition and particularly reducing inflammation. To do that, you actually need a lot of the micronutrients from things like fruits, vegetables, vegetable juice. So if if you see any footage of what these teams are eating day to day, they often actually are having a lot of vegetable juice and fruit juice, things like that, beet juice. Yeah. And this also applies before everyone goes out and changes their, their own diet at home. Like the quantities are so large that it that's when it becomes really important. Because if you, as, as I experienced, if you try to eat a ton of food and, and too much complex carbohydrates, you get problems. I had my son and I had pasta last night. I feel fine right now because um, we didn't eat that much. But I actually would love to just go around with the team during the tour and just eat every meal with them, you know, just to kind of like get a, like a get really like on the ground idea of what they're doing. And I and to tie it all back together to today's stage, some, an interesting thing, you bring up the micronutrients. That's what a lot of these chefs are saying or nutritionists where okay, so you're going to go low fiber for mountain stages. You've got to get the micronutrients somewhere. So we anticipate easy stages, aka sprint stages. And that's when we have our salads, our fruits, things like that. Well, I'm curious, well, how do they deal with this? Because if you watch today's stage, it might've been boring. It was not easy. I mean, it was on from the gun. They did, they did 143 kilometers. Sorry. Let me pull it up. I have the wrong stage. They did 188 kilometers and three hours and 52 minutes. That is crazy. That's over a hundred miles, well over a hundred miles. So they're flying through these stages and it must be really difficult for these nutritionists to be like, well, this is an easy stage. Let's load up on a bunch of stuff that's hard to digest, but we need because your body needs micronutrients. And, you know, I, it, we saw like it completely melted down at the end of the stage today. Like the sprinters teams and the sprinters could just not hold the wheel of Laporte or that little mini breakaway at the end. And there's just doesn't seem to be any easy days anymore. Like I think stage 21 is going to be the first easy day. Yeah. I think this is another way that the tour has completely changed. And I would bet that in future tours, teams will have to alter their nutrition strategies. This is, you know, I know I've talked about Caleb Ewan's Instagram in earlier episodes. Another aspect of it that I find to be quite interesting is you get to see what Caleb's eating most days and, you know, whether it's his breakfast, they don't often show dinner, but you do get a bit of a glimpse of like, okay, what are they eating? Why sometimes he's interacting with the team chef or nutritionist. Um, something that we haven't talked about, Spencer, that I want to touch on, because I know we're going to have to wrap up here pretty soon. Going into the tour, Yumbo's strategy of going for the yellow jersey and the green jersey with two leaders entering, entering entering the race just it struck me as insane i didn't think there was any way it was going to work now it has actually worked the vibe within the team seems to be great and there it just seemed like there weren't overtly big egos but you had two guys who desperately wanted to win the tour de france you had wow who's the new eddie Merckx and has an appetite for winning everything that's in front of him, stage wins, the green jersey. You have the support riders who are fantastic. But I really wondered about what's going to happen inside of this team because that's a, usually a recipe for disaster. And then I compare that to, say, Ineos. 
I don't believe that they ever thought for a minute that Thomas was going to win. And I think the fact that we frequently have seen Thomas just alone at critical moments of the race with no help from his team, including riders who I believe truly could have helped him, but had put out too much energy during different stages of the race. And you just wonder, like, what's the vibe like in that team and how does that contribute to or take away from their ability to actually go for the overall? It's funny. I mean, yeah, I was just thinking about the same thing. I mean, Yumbo, it's funny. Yumbo in 2022 is the exact opposite of Yumbo in 2020 when they didn't go for anything. They just went for primos for the overall. They rode really conservatively. And it it really, you could tell it really hurt them when they lost that tour. Think about think of all that Wout had sacrificed, all that Dumoulin had sacrificed. I don't think Dumoulin ever emotionally recovered from that. You know, there's that famous image of him and Wout in horror watching Tade win on the final time trial. Yeah, I think that was really emotionally difficult for them. So then when we looked at their strategy this year of like two leaders, points jersey, this is crazy. Like this is never going to work. It obviously did work um, somewhat incredibly. I think maybe they, the two leaders sounded crazy to us, but if you think how much Roglic crashes, it was more probably let's get to the first week and reevaluate where we are. And we'll probably have one leader. And that's exactly what happened. And it's just like the good, the good vibes. To go back to the good vibes theory where they seem so much happier and so much more energized. And if you think about how do you keep guys on the team, like Laporte is so good. Um, but, you know, if he had just to work the whole time, maybe he's not so happy. Maybe he's not going to resign. But they basically just gifted him a stage win because the team ground everyone down so much over the course of the last few stages that it made it possible for him to win today. Wout gets to do his thing and help them. I mean, the fact that they have him helping, we saw yesterday how key he was just to be able to ride Pogacar off his wheel. That's really valuable for them. They're finding this perfect new age balance between letting people go for their own thing and supporting their, and then the key thing, supporting their leader. That's just, yeah, as you say, that doesn't seem like Enios ever quite solved that. Like it, it just, feels like they're all out there doing their own thing. I even look at Tom Pitcock, 17th. That's pretty pretty good. I mean, it's always good to have him practice riding for GC, but he's almost an hour down. You know, that's the same as Sepp Kuss. He's right next to Sepp Kuss in the overall standings, who obviously helped and supported Jonas far more than Thomas. Tom Pitcock helped Garrett Thomas. Yeah, it just felt, the whole team, feel, that whole team feels like something's missing a little bit. They just all feel like, they're out there like do you ever like did you ever race on one of these composite teams where you'd get thrown together with like six other people and you'd go do like nature valley grand prix and you'd, you'd never met these people before you didn't care about them and you're all just kind of out there doing your own thing trying to get a contract on a bigger team that's exactly what they look like except they are the biggest team in the sport i, I was also a bit befuddled and it left a little cold with their their strategy on the other hand garrett thomas and third is the best possible outcome they could have hoped for here. I think Egan Bernal was was probably the plan until he had his accident. Thomas, if you remember this, this is crazy. I, I had forgotten about this. Thomas, remember, he almost didn't get re-signed with the team in the offseason. The sticking point in the contract was he wanted to be a leader. They said, no, you're 36. We have other guys. You cannot lead the team anymore. He resigned like on a domestique role. And then... <laughs> Sure enough, finds himself back at the tour leading the team. So pretty good story for Garrett Thomas and and honestly, the best result the team could have hoped for. So 
But as you say, the way they got from point A to point Z was a little strange to me. And I, I don't quite see the path forward for them. And, and why is Jonas? I don't understand. Like, why are why are these really, really good riders not on their team? Like, they seem to be consistently missing on these. We had not heard of Jonas Vindegaard in 2019, and now he's the best GC rider in the world. Like, how do they whiff on these guys? And I don't know what their plan is going forward. Let's say Bernal comes back and he's not the rider that he once was, which look at Froome. I really hope that Bernal comes back and he's swinging He's hitting as hard as he always did. He might not be. Then who are you going to build your franchise around? Does it, you know, do we see two transitional years where they're building towards the Pidcock dynasty at the tour? I don't know. What do you think? I mean, they always seem to be fighting last year's or like yesterday's war where Egan Bernal, yeah, he could be great. He could not be great. You can't really fault him for the accident was an accident. You couldn't see it coming. But even Bernal, I mean, they just—I don't—they just have this strategy of even Bernal has to fight. It seems like within that team to get leadership, and it just—it feels like their Hunger Games. It's like a Trumpian type leadership style where he pits underlings against each other to get the strongest one to survive. Well, Yumbo doesn't do that. They did not make Jonas strangle out Stephen Kreuzweg and Primoz Roglic to become a leader. Or think about Tom Dumoulin. Think how good he was. And they just said, Tom, sorry, you're working for Jonas. I mean, that's like the way they empower young talent. It's just, I don't see that at Ineos. It doesn't seem to be part of their culture. I think it's going to be a hard path forward. I don't, I don't really know where they go from here other than offering these guys a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of money to come race for them. Yeah, I don't know what the path forward is. And I recently crowned Garrett Thomas as the new king of comedy within the Peloton (laughs) on Twitter. If you're not following us on Twitter or interacting with us, please do. Spencer's at BTP Cycling. I'm at Vontz. That's V-O-N-T-Z and also at Hardway Pod. But if you've been following Thomas's stand-up routine throughout the tour, he's definitely winning. He gets the KOM. I'm putting Pidcock probably in second position on the podium. His dive into the fountain, some of his commentary about Yumbo and areas of uh, Ineos's physiology that were being handled by Yumbo were quite funny, if not a bit inappropriate. But, uh, you know, they seem to have this kind of like jokey, fun, spirited thing, but they just seem like they're a bit of a mess and a directionless team. And I can't believe I'm saying this about a team that's got a guy in third place, but they, they just, there are a lot of egos on that team, is the sense that I get a lot of competing interests. And we know that they're competing interests on Yumbo, yet they have put it all together and it's totally working. It seems like the opposite. Yeah, and I, it is key to mention this. If you remember back when they had Landa, they had Froome, they had Thomas, those, all those guys could have been leaders on that team. Um, they had a great director. Obviously, Dave Railsford was more in the picture. He kind of runs things with an iron fist, but they had this guy's name is Nico Portal. He was like the head director at races. He was an amazing man manager, amazing at dealing with uh, egos and personalities. I even saw him get in Landa's face once after a stage. Um, he died tragically of a heart attack at like 41 years old. This was about two or three years ago. And that's just about the time they started to have all their problems. I don't think they've won a single tour since he is his death. So they're, they're clearly missing that portal glue in, in man management that can 
tell people what to do. But even with him, I, they don't have the the engines to win these races. And the problem with their strategy is, let's say they sign Jonas for 18 million euros a year. There's going to be a new Jonas in two years, you know, and like that's who you need to be finding. Find the next Jonas Vindegaard, next Taddy Pogacar, because I bet these guys, is is Cycling 2.0 tells us, will not be dominating for the next five years. There will be someone new who we do not know. We don't we don't know their name currently. Yeah, and where does Quintana go from here? Now he had a pretty good rate. He gets a lot of crap. He's sitting fifth right now. He's going to get passed by Vlasov in the TT. He's going to end up. In sixth or seventh, pretty good race for Quintana. Um, he's also someone I think time has not been kind to. I don't think he has the focus he used to have, but also the sports just change change so much. Um, even if you throw Pete Chris Froome into this race, I think he's fighting for the podium. I don't think he's winning. Can Pete Quintana is probably getting third or fourth. So I don't know. I actually I think Quintana had a good race, and for a team like Arkea, we we're talking about Bahrain. They they have nothing out of this tour. Think about EF. They don't. They don't have a rider in the top ten. Um, you know, I'm looking. I'm looking at just teams. Mobistar. I mean, they don't have a rider in the top ten. The fact that Arkea, who's a second division team, is gonna is currently sitting fifth overall at the tour. That's pretty good for Nairo. Um, I think you can just keep being Nairo. I think that team is perfectly happy with that situation. This has been a good tour for them. Yeah. He had a great race. I really wanted to see him win a stage, honestly. That's the downside of this GC yeah. ride. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that he put his focus in the wrong place. We know that, as, as you noted, his team director said he truly believed he was, he was riding for the GC. I just want to see him go back to being a fighter, going for stage wins. Who knows if he'll ever go back to his explosive, dynamic climbing style that I think a lot of people fell in love with, you know, you lo- tend to lose that explosiveness as you age, but that's what I would like to see from him. And we're going to have to wrap here in just a second. So I'm going to throw out one really, well, I just want to throw out a question. I don't, I haven't seen this examined anywhere. Um, do we think, well, I, I'm not going to, I'm going to rewind. Oh. Yeah, man. No, I'm gonna hold it. I'm gonna save it. Unbelievable. I'm gonna save it for the next episode. But let's maybe. <laughs> oh. uh, I've just I gotta hold it for one more episode. Wow. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna hold it for one more episode. I'm just gonna. Okay. I'm gonna reflect on it. But any chance that we see leadership changing hands at the Tour de France tomorrow? Uh, I, it would be. I would be remiss to say no. Realistically, no. There is a chance. I mean. Another Dane, Michael Rasmussen, I'd still, this is burned in my memory, had the worst time trial I've ever seen in my life in 2005, and he felt he just tumbled down the GC. It's possible. Um, it's not probable. But All right. I, I, I'm still excited for the TT. Obviously, we're idiots if we think Pogacar is going to overtake it, but I'll, I'll be sitting there like getting excited after two kilometers when he's 10 seconds up on Jonas. Will Ghana get a flat? Ghana will get a flat. Ghana will not win this. He will flat out of this TT. Does Wout have a chance of winning the stage? Oh, yeah. Especially with him sitting up today. I think he's. it's going to be like shooting fish in a barrel for him. Yeah, I'm calling a Wout stage victory. I, I second that. He recovers so well during these Grand Tours. The other big-time trialists do not tend to recover as well. Gavel. All right. Well, thanks, Andrew. We'll let you get off to your next 
obligation. And we cannot wait to hear your question on Monday's episode. Stand by. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone.